Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And joining from our headquarters in Scenic Hell's Kitchen, we've got Lauren Johnson, a staff writer covering technology. Lauren, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. And also back is frequent guest Katie Richards, a staff writer covering the agency world and branding. Katie, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. All right. Well, we got a lot to talk about this week because it is South by Southwest week and none of us are there. We have a quite large team there, but uh, did not want to break them away from all the ruckus and events and uh, bring them onto the show. So uh, Lauren's going to catch us up on everything she's seeing from the tech world, and uh, we'll talk about some of the stories our team has been cranking out from Austin. Uh, We're also going to hear about the year's best initiatives from the International Women's Day, uh, which we previewed a bit last week, but we're going to talk a little bit more about what actually happened, what was worth uh, looking back at. And Applebee's is trying to revive itself through advertising once again. We will weigh in on whether that sounds promising. And, of course, Tim's going to walk us through the week's best ads worth watching. But first, the news. So last week's podcast was recorded right before International Women's Day, which was also a day without a woman. Uh, A lot of people participated in, uh, several folks from our office as well. So it was a little uh, mellower than usual in the office. Some of us were were scrambling a bit more, but it was, I thought, a really cool project. I guess, you, I don't know what to call it, an activism effort. Um, Katie, what did you think of A Day Without a Woman? Well, I I think it was a really cool idea. Um, a lot of agencies participated in different ways. It's a little tricky, uh, you know, once you don't have the women in the office, it's obviously a lot trickier to get everything done. And I think even we kind of felt that. Uh, Lauren and I were both here in the office working that day, but we had, you know, a few members of our team that decided to take the day off and, you know, attend rallies or protests, whatever they felt was best. And I think even we kind of, you know, noticed that it was a little bit more difficult without some of our colleagues here. But, you know, I think it was a cool, you know, it was definitely a cool way for people to get involved and express their concerns and kind of fight for equality. Yeah, I know several people, uh, one of our colleagues uh, was tweeting about how her kind of internal decision making on whether to take part. Adweek certainly uh, was totally fine with uh, employees taking part in that. That's not to say that all of them did. Um, But uh, one, Christina Monlos, a producer on the podcast, she tweeted some really interesting thoughts on basically having this internal dialogue about is it better to you know, to participate and stay home and be active in other ways or to come into work and help chronicle what was happening on the day without a woman, uh, which, you know, she ended up doing, you and Lauren as well. But to your point, we had several staffers uh, who did take part. And I remember waking up that morning and feeling like kind of stressed out about it. And I was like, good. You know, that that's the way it should work, right? <laughs> if the whole point is for us to recognize the contributions that a lot of women make in the w- workplace and at home, uh, it definitely worked for me, um, so it so it was a little tougher, but uh, all around a really interesting, uh, really interesting effort to come about. And there were so many other things that happened this year on the International uh, Women's Day. Uh, Tim, uh, you wrote about one of the biggest, which was the fearless girl statue that McCann put on Wall Street next to the bull. I believe we previewed that or talked a little bit about it last week, but this story just exploded. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about it? And and you talked to the people behind it, so let us know kind of. How did this thing come about? 
Yeah, so this was a sculpture uh, that McCann, New York, uh, put up on, on Wall Street, right, very close to the Charging Bull sculpture that everyone's um, familiar with. And it, they put it up overnight last Monday into Tuesday. So it, it was really, uh, you know, it went live uh, a day before International Women's Day, and it got immediately got enormous attention. I mean, it was literally an overnight sensation, and everybody started crowding around uh, the statue. And so later in the week, uh, I was able to catch up with um, the two women at McCann who where this idea you know, really came from, uh, senior copywriter Tally Gumbiner and senior art director Lizzie Wilson. So I chatted with them, and it was, you know, it was really interesting um, you know, how the idea for a sculpture came about. Um, basically, it came from the brief, and the brief wasn't just about celebrating women or celebrating women in business or even calling for companies uh, to put more women in leadership roles. Uh, the campaign had to do with those things, but the brief was actually to communicate something different entirely, which was actually to call attention to a very specific fact, which was that um, companies that do have uh, gender diverse leadership and, and a lot more women in, in leadership roles actually perform better financially than, than companies that don't. So that was you know, more so than a, a generally uplifting or empowering message. That was a very specific goal that they wanted to do with this. And so really what, what Tally and Lizzie took from that brief was that they had to, you know, they really had to change the perception of what constitutes success on Wall Street. And so taking that a step further, they said, well, what is the perception of success on Wall Street? And, you know, they really felt that it was summed up pretty well by the Wall Street bull, which is this very masculine image of financial power. And so, you know, to represent, you know, this idea that, that women bring their own financial power to corporations, you know, they had this really inspired idea to create a competing sculpture. Uh, and of course, everyone's familiar with it now. It's this fearless girl um, who, you know, she's standing opposite the bull, kind of challenging the bull. She's got a very, you know, defiant kind of confident stance. And, uh, you know, the idea was that this sculpture would hopefully, uh, you know, update ideas about financial power uh, that, that previously only the bull embodied. So that was the idea. Uh, really cool idea, obviously connected, um, you know, with m millions of people, you know, have seen the sculpture now just in photographs online, you know, tons and tons of people have visited it in person. Uh, you know, and really after Tally and Lizzie had this idea and the rest of the production department at McCann, um, it really became an exercise in craft. And, uh, you know, it's a hell of a brilliantly crafted work as well. Uh, everything from the girl's posture to, you know, how she looks, uh, her face, you know, it was, was designed to be very inclusive. And, I mean, obviously it's a, not a traditional ad by any means, uh, it, it's, but it's very much, um, it, it is very much an ad. It was created by an ad agency for a client. Uh, I guess you could call it a, a, a PR campaign, if nothing else. Uh, all the stories about about the fearless girl are mentioning the client, which is State Street Global Advisors. A lot of them mention McCann as well. So, you know, it's a, a kind of a cultural moment. You know, it's a beautiful piece of art in and of itself, but it's and, and it's a cultural moment too, and it's an advertisement. So it does, you know, it does a lot, and that's I think that's why it's been so popular. Is it means different things to, to different people, but it's it's. Uh, it's gotten a hell of a reaction and, you know, certainly one of the best uh, best things done this year by an ad agency. Lauren, what did you think of it? I, I know there was some debate going around about Twitter on Twitter about the some of the details of this, you know, why why a young girl versus an adult woman. What was your take on on kind of the the visual here and the metaphor and the effectiveness of it? Right. So, I, you know, I, I think the statue overwhelmingly is a success because of just how many people have noticed it how viral it did go over a short period of time and, you know, image, physical, like social images of this physical image just popping up all over uh, the internet. It's pretty remarkable. I do, I do kind of took a little bit of an issue, I guess, with the fact that it was a young girl versus a woman, uh, which isn't necessarily specific to just this work. I think you see a lot of these, um, you know, progressive brands that want to make a statement about women and take on some of these bigger issues and they use younger women or girls to kind of depict that and you know to some that's it, it's, it seems just like a safe way of uh, attacking these bigger broader issues and you know as we see more brands want to get a little bit more progressive and political about advertising I, I would like to see more adults uh, depicted in, in this type of advertising myself. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I, di I did ask Tali and Lizzie about that. Um, 
and they said, you know, that a girl really was was relatable to everybody, including children, and that a grown-up woman might not be as relatable for little girls, um, you know. Um, but I totally see your point, and and you know, this the idea that maybe a woman, a grown woman, is is more of a threatening uh, image of of feminism versus a girl who obviously would be much less so. Um, I mean, they had, you know, the, the creatives definitely had their their rationale, but um, but what you're saying, I mean, that was a, a fairly common reaction to it, too. Like, why does it have to be a girl? Why can't it be a woman? Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie, you covered another interesting project uh, that came out of International Women's Day. Uh, uh, this also from an agency. It was an app. Uh, I'll let you kind of explain it and uh, let us know, you know, what, what you thought of this idea and the execution of it. Sure. So BETC Sao Paulo made an app called Manterrupting, and it's essentially an app that a woman can download and record conversations that she has, you know, in the workplace or socially. And it is ideally what it's supposed to do is pick up on the number of times that a woman is interrupted in a conversation by a man. So the way it works is you download it, you record a few sound bites, you record a conversation, and then it starts kind of tracking your data. The idea being that a woman can then go back and look at how many times she's been interrupted and kind of, you know, at least just be more aware of the fact that it's happening um, and, you know, maybe be more conscious of that in further conversations that she's having. I mean, I think it was a it was definitely an interesting idea. I think readers really responded to the story and um, kind of were interested in it. I myself downloaded the app over the weekend and tried to use it with a friend of mine. And while he was definitely trying to interrupt me, it kind of picked up a little bit more than I think, you know, anytime he spoke, it kind of picked up and counted that as him interrupting me. So I don't know, you know, from a design standpoint, if it's actually accomplishing what it's supposed to be, but I thought it was kind of a cool idea, at least to kind of raise awareness for women, just that, you know, that or anyone, it doesn't need to just be for a woman, but like that, you know, interrupting people is something that happens in the workplace and you have to kind of stand up for yourself and, um, you know, be aware when that's happening and have your voice be heard. I feel like they should tweak the app so that it detects every time a guy says the word actually, and, and then it just <laughs> r- reports him for mansplaining. <laughs> that but, could be a uh, cool feature for sure. <laughs> Sounds more effective. Yeah, it's one of those, this is uh, like a lot of apps, especially apps that come out of the agency world. This is one of those, it's like a great idea and it's a fun one to talk about. But uh, I was just like, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't I don't really see a lot of people really using this on a practical level because it's one of those things you either are aware that you're in a, a, a work environment or an environment that, that has a lot of this uh, and, then, and then you don't really need an app to remind you, um, you know, or you're not. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely it was a, it was a talker and one of our most read stories of the week uh, of many uh, that came out of that. So, uh, for, I encourage everybody to check out uh, adweek.com for lots more stories from International Women's Day. Uh, but we're going to move on uh, to another just amazing hot international topic, which is Applebee's. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Applebee's has a new creative agency again. Uh, so this is their third creative agency in two years. Uh, that they jumped from, let's see, Crispin Porter Bogusky to uh, Barkley out of Kansas City to this time Gray. Uh, so Gray, uh, the agency network, won a very highly uh, competed uh, pitch. They beat out 25 other agencies. Uh, and I, I believe the, follow- the finalists, according to our article from Patrick Coffey, were BBDO San Francisco and Argonaut uh, were the two that Gray beat out. Gray's going to run this account out of their uh, combination of their New York and L.A. offices Applebee's has just been a fascinating account. I mean, especially shifting gears so much, they're shifting leadership a lot. Uh, financially, they're not doing well. Their parent company, Dynequity, has lost about half its value of its stock over the last year. So a very rough year. Uh, Applebee's is a big part of that. They got a new president uh, earlier this month uh, who was a former CMO uh, for back in the early 2000s uh, when they were having a little headier days back then. I think since then he's moved on to KFC and did some work for Chili's parent company. But, uh, but, but what I guess I'm most interested in is kind of the future of Applebee's. I mean, Applebee's seems more often than not with millennials kind of the butt of a joke. Uh, Katie, I'll, I'll ask you to speak for all millennials, as I'm awesome. sure you love to do. Yeah, <laughs> if you could just, I mean, what is the, the, 
you know, we all kind of know how Applebee's positions itself is like it's casual and great food and community atmosphere. But how do most people under the age of 30 really see Applebee's these days? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, speaking for all millennials, uh, it's kind of difficult. <laughs> but <laughs> I guess I would say when I think of an Applebee's, I kind of think of like, a place where you're gonna find like families of 10 with like screaming children and the food's probably gonna be lukewarm and you're gonna sit on uncomfortable seats that are made of uncomfortable material. Like that's kind of what comes to mind when I think of it. I don't think of like a hip, fast, casual restaurant. And I think that's also partly conveyed in the marketing. Like you don't, I, I don't think I can think of like a really catchy Applebee's ad that I've ever seen. And, and the irony there is they just did their biggest advertising push ever last year. Uh, right. When they were with Barclay. They spent $75 million trying to raise awareness of the uh, of their wood-fired grills, which was a big addition they had made. And, you know, to me, uh, they never came out and said this, but that seems like it was trying to push against this perception that they microwave all their food, uh, which, right. again, is I have no idea how true that is. It, uh, I'd, I'd say from what little I've eaten there that often feels like the case, uh, but it's definitely a joke. And so they spend a lot of money trying to show people, look, we have fires that we burn things over. And I, I don't think it was tremendously effective. Lauren, uh, what, what's your take on how optimistic we can be for the Applebee's brand uh, going into the future? I mean, I guess, you know, we haven't seen the new work from Gray yet. So that'll be interesting when some of that comes out. But yeah, I guess to, to Katie's point, I would kind of argue that Applebee's has bigger problems than just its advertising kind of has a bigger brand image um we have i'm thinking of robert clara who's a uh, editor here at ad weekly likes to like tackle these kinds of issues because he's a encyclopedia of knowledge when it comes to brands history and he did something not too long ago about tgi fridays which i would lump into the same kind of group and category as applebee's about totally kind of refreshing um, the entire like r restaurant experience with this concept store they have geared at millennials. So I, I, I think, um, you know, better food, number one, would be a good starting point for Applebee's. And uh, just kind of a bigger brand change is really what they're in need of. Yeah, I miss uh, John Corbett doing the voiceovers. Remember when he did the voiceovers? I always thought John Corbett had the perfect casual dining voice. <laughs> where you know it was like it was so his his voice was like the the audio equivalent of Applebee's food. It was like kind of bland, <laughs> but kind of like upbeat and kind of fake sounding. I don't know. It was. He, can you do an I'm impression not, of it? I'm, I don't think <laughs> I like can. But <laughs> the most backhanded not, compliment. <laughs> I, well, not to knock John Corbett because I actually think he's pretty great, John Corbett. Um, maybe he's just great at everything because he, he's doing. I think he's he does Walgreens voiceovers now. And suddenly he's perfect for that too. So maybe maybe oh, he just those um, are good voiceovers. Yeah, I like the Walgreens yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah, so good. Yeah, and, and when well, he did, I mean, you know, like welcome to the, the whole welcome to the neighborhood, or when you're here, your family. Remember when he, when he, when Applebee's did that? Oh right. Um, that was totally John Corbett like bringing that home and the voice. I thought it was well, great. Well, I mean, th this was a guy who got famous for you know basically being a voice on the radio reading literature in a small Alaskan town or whatever. Uh, in uh, in Northern Exposure. So, I mean, it makes sense that he'd be a, oh, a great, go, yeah. great voice. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's it, I, I, I sometimes wonder about the effectiveness of these celebrity voiceovers because, I you know, certain ones are very distinctive, but honestly, I think sometimes the best are the ones, like, I don't think I would place John Corbett um, right away without kind of seeing him. But, uh, but you're, you're right. He's just got that kind of folksy, real charm. Yeah, that, totally. You know, you know, I read I read Patrick's story and, and the the, uh, the new SVP of marketing at Applebee's, who I guess joined last summer, um, is promising quote original and compelling work, and I'd be very surprised if that <laughs> is, is paid off. That's so descriptive. <laughs> I, I don't well, think I, they're going to show any sort of. I, I would be surprised if they had anything original or compelling. Don't all the, of their ads always? They're all they're all very like promotional based is part of the problem, which I guess a lot of brands in that category are too. But they're always like, come in and try our brand new entree that you're never gonna find anywhere else. It's like, okay, I, right? You need and to like the, the tabletop shots, the the food, you know, the food shots, like Applebee's, it's almost like a, a visual style that they help pioneer. You know, it's like very very basic. You know. Like the, the, the shrimp dishes sizzling in the pan. Like everything they do is like very, you're right, like very um, offer oriented and tabletop oriented. 
I mean, it'd be interesting if they did something, you know, something kind of cool. Like, but these companies, even companies like Olive Garden, I think Olive Garden actually um, hired Gray a few years back. Or actually, no, wait. Gray had, had, I believe, had Olive Garden for years and years. And then they tried something new. Uh, remember that spot where it was like actual footage from Olive Garden's? And it was really different, no. and it was oh, actually. I would kind not of, want to see that. No, no, no! But it was actually really, really good, and it was. It had that song "Home" by Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros on the soundtrack, and it was like huh. a, a cover oh, of that really? song. And it was really good, and we wrote a story <laughs> on Adweek about how this was like the best, um, the best Olive Garden commercial in years. And then, like a month later, they fired Gray. Uh, that's what we so, get. So maybe Applebee's saw that work and was like, "Oh, that's kind of interesting." Like. They can do kind of cool work for like terrible brands like ours. <laughs> and then Gray's going to come back and say like, okay, get this. There's food flying through the air and kind of hitting each other in midair. And then a steak being cut in, you know, over a flame. Right. And then a, yeah, a plate going. they're never going to take that risk again of doing anything original. Uh, all right. So we will keep an eye out and let you guys know when we see the first work to come out of this uh, new phase of Applebee's. Uh, another uh, piece of news, the last one we wanted to cover, uh, Game of Thrones is coming back. Uh, we have the season premiere date for, I believe this is season like, 7. Um, July 17, I'll, sk- I'll skip to the money shots, July 17, uh, fans had to really wait to find out that date because they uh, debuted it in two ways. One is with a really sleek animated teaser, and, and let's go ahead, just because that's really the easy one to play on a podcast, let's listen to some of the VO uh, from the teaser video that came out. You don't think I'd let you marry that beast, do you? I now proclaim Cersei of the House Lannister, protector of the Seven Kingdoms. Lannister, Targaryen, Baratheon, Stark, Tyrell. They're all just spokes on a wheel. This one's on top, then that one's on top, and on and on it spins, crushing those on the ground. So basically the audio there is just a montage of some previous lines, some lines that are probably from the next, from the new season, uh, just a, a cold, different string of characters. Uh, but they also promoted it with a Facebook live stream uh, that had a really interesting concept. They basically had a giant block of ice with the reveal date uh, kind of hidden inside of it. And then they blasted it with fire and this uh, big dramatic uh, live video that had some celebrity cameos. The thing was kind of a train wreck. It uh, it failed twice uh, <laughs> in 15 minute increments. The the live video would just kind of die, and fans had to wait for the brand to start a new one. Uh, so they had to restart it uh, twice, and uh, and then finally got through. And I think there's people either really underestimated or the brand overestimated how much time it would take to melt a giant block of ice because people were really getting frustrated. <laughs> we embedded we embedded several tweets of people just being like. <laughs> Just absolutely miserable. I, I I should have had some of those tweets pulled up because they were like, oh, this is the worst thing uh, Game of Thrones has screwed up since the Dorn plot, which if you watch the show is mildly funny. Um, but yeah, so it was just became this really exciting thing that just kept grinding on and on and on. And then finally it was revealed. So, hey, July 17. Uh, just some interesting stats. Uh, I, I looked up some of the ratings info right before this show. The last season finale, uh, so at the end of season six, uh, set a record for the series. It was 8.9 million viewers. That's live and within uh, the first day uh, that the show that the episode was out. Uh, just for comparison, what's interesting is so that's basically 9 million viewers. The season one finale had 3 million viewers. So this is a show that has started out very large and has already tripled. If you factor in streaming views, which I watch it on HBO now, I guess the the streaming only one. Uh, that comes out to 23.3 million viewers per episode uh, last season. That was an average that HBO uh, released. So a lot of people watch this show. In terms of the live ratings uh, with the 1849, the coveted uh, demographic for TV networks, it is basically only, it was third uh, last year, which is amazing for being a pay uh, channel. You know, that's something you really have to go out of your way to pay for. And the only shows that did better were Walking Dead and Empire. Uh, so... Still a powerhouse. What's interesting with Game of Thrones to me is that as someone who read the books a long time ago, I was very excited about the TV show. The show has now surpassed the books. And so I can't, we are two seasons deep past the last book. <laughs> so it's one of those where you can't 
hurry up and read the book before it comes out. It's at this point, it's just spoiling the novels. Uh, but you know, hey, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, any of you still watching it? Or I don't. I I've watched the first episode of the first season, and that was it. But as I understand, it hasn't f- suffered the fate of Walking Dead, which has just gotten wretched. Uh, no, it has not. Game of Thrones, I, at the last, uh, I stopped watching Walking Dead, which for those of you who know me and how much my wife and I both love zombies uh, and, the, and the Walking <laughs> Dead books, uh, that is crazy that we stopped watching it, but that's the reality. Uh, Lauren, are you a fan at all? Uh, I have never seen an episode, but I know people are really into it. <laughs> that's like the worst analysis ever. <laughs> like, I, hear, I hear it's pretty pretty popular. All right, expert commentary. <laughs> I guess that's what I get. All I right. can talk about how awful their the Facebook Live, like how awful Facebook Live is, if you want to get into that. <laughs> well, and, and it reminded me because we did, I can't remember if, were any of you at our Mezcal Live video? Oh, no. Well, Katie I wasn't. was. I no, wasn't, but oh. I, I think Christina was there. Yeah, oh, yeah. All so right. we, we had this live video about a year ago at uh, Mayahuel in East Village. Uh, where we were going to go down there and we were going to do this me- a story on the premiumization of Mezcal. And we're gonna, it was amazing. We had a great Wi-Fi signal. We brought lights and cameras and all this cool stuff. And we were going to do a great live video to kind of walk people through, you know, these premium Mezcals. And then we turned it on and it just, Facebook Live just said, error. <laughs> you know, it's like just, <laughs> just, and we had been tweeting it, promoting it, getting everybody excited. And we had like seven people on, on hand. They opened the bar early for us. And then it was just literally saying, sorry, you, you can't, I don't know. It just didn't, didn't work. And it wouldn't yeah, tell you. They're working out the bugs. They're definitely working out the bugs. I mean, when we did our live stream of the, uh, where we all got together and watched the Super Bowl commercials, we got bumped off there like halfway through. Yeah, which yeah. happened happened the year before. Yeah. Facebook's encouraging um, like marketers and publishers to do longer Facebook Live videos because you know at some point people would have only done it for you know five or ten minutes. Well, now they want you to do it much longer because they can slide an ad in there in these mid-roll ads. So if, if certain circumstances like this keep happening, I'm not sure you know publishers are really going to want to do that, and brands are really going to want to do that. Yeah, and, you know, there are worse fates than being stuck at a Mezcal bar with nothing else to do except, you know, drink Mezcal at that point. So, I mean, we <laughs> suffered through, but it did kind of strike me. I was like, man, this was a huge effort for us to come down here and do this. Can you imagine if you're a brand spending, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars to prepare that something this dramatic and then still being at the whims of the technology and the platform that you're using? You know, so it, it was a very cool idea. I'm glad to see it. Game of Thrones always steps up you know, the marketing game uh, pretty well. This is just one where they, they stumbled a bit. I don't think it'll hurt the show at all, and it will do very well. And all of you need to start watching the damn show. Jeez. Come on. <laughs> you got yeah. six seasons, six and almost seven seasons to catch up on. All right. Well, that's it for the news. And now we move on to my favorite part of the show, ads worth watching. Tim, uh, I believe this week uh, things are a little funky because we have no actual TV spots uh, or even video spots this week. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, three primarily out-of-home campaigns, actually. So um, kind of interesting. But the first one is this really fun campaign from Heinz um, that took this uh, campaign idea called Pass the Heinz that Don Draper actually pitched to, uh, fictionally to the ketchup company uh, on Mad Men back in season six. And what Heinz did, they decided to... Uh, 50 years later um, approved this stuff and they're actually running uh, the Pass the Heinz ads now. They're running three billboards in New York City and they're also running uh, the, the, the ads as print ads in I believe the New York Post and also in Variety. So it's a pretty limited media buy. You know, it's definitely kind of a PR stunt, um, but it's pr- it's really kind of fun. You know, Mad Men fans are kind of freaking out about it today. We just post- posted a story about it this morning. Um, so Don's idea really was to not show the product at all. So this is kind of a got milk strategy of creating, a, you know, craving for the product through its absence, which, you know, in 1993, when got milk uh, first came around, it was kind of, you know, a bit revolutionary then. Certainly in 1967, uh, it, w- it was seen as kind of crazy. And, and in the in the Mad Men episode, uh, Heinz doesn't go for the idea at all. The idea is to really, is to just show food that goes well with ketchup, like French fries or cheeseburger, and not have any ketchup there. And the headline says, pass the Heinz. Um, let's and let's what, uh, listen to some of the client feedback in that episode, because I always think, <laughs> okay, to me, sure. that's the, the best part of this whole bit. Pass the Heinz. You mean the Heinz ketchup? It's Heinz. It only means one thing. 
It feels like half an ad. Well, Pete, you said I'd say it. It's pretty bold work. I think I still want to see our bottle. I thought that at first, too, but if you We really will think... test it both ways. It's a testament to ketchup that there can be no confusion. Yeah, so I love it when the client says it's half an ad, uh, and then Pete sort of tries to, Pete Campbell tries to save the day, and it doesn't end up working. He doesn't, you know, Don doesn't get the account, and so this pitch was was not successful. Um, but, you know, jumping from the fictional world to the real world, suddenly the pitch is successful because Heinz this week uh, green light, greenlighted the campaign, and uh, it is running. So I spoke to, you know, David in Miami, uh, which was, you know, is, is the, the Heinz Ketchup Agency. You know, they did the Wiener Stampede at the Super Bowl a couple years ago, and, and they basically took this idea to Heinz and said, you should run these ads. These are really cool ads, actually. The, um, and, it, and it is a solid campaign idea and actually works, of course, if you, if you haven't watched Mad Men. Um, but it's, you know, a big treat for the Mad Men fans, too. Uh, and it's rolling out just as the 10th anniversary of the Mad Men uh, season one premiere is coming this summer. So kind of nice timing and uh, kind of a, a meta blending of real and fictional, which is always kind of fun, too. Well, speaking of meta, like one of the ads, so the ad elements, uh, I don't have it in front of me here, but if I remember right, it's French fries, uh, a hamburger, and then a steak. Yeah, I didn't mention that specifically, but because uh, first of all, you shouldn't put ketchup on steak. But I was going to say, tri- who's putting ketchup yeah. on a steak? Like, uh, just I, one man, one man, <laughs> topically, Donald Trump, <laughs> right. puts ketchup on his uh, well done steak. And I remember when I saw it, I was just like, this steak is really undercooked because it is like a beautiful medium rare steak, and uh, our president notoriously orders his steaks well done with ketchup. So I thought that was <laughs> right. a, a funny callback that. We're getting ketchup on steak, and it's going to look like they're really kind of playing to the political zeitgeist, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they credited, the, the campaign's officially credited to David in Miami and Sterling Cooper, Draper Price, so that's <laughs> kind of, you know, it, it's got a fun, um, playful vibe, the whole thing. Pretty cool idea. I, I cracked up at the subtle, the, the credits that we always run at the end of these uh, write-ups on ads. It's typed with a typewriter, <laughs> which <laughs> All right, I thought we'll was a nice touch. An image in, instead of actually posting, which was a practical solution because I didn't have the credits, by the way, um, uh-huh. in, in, in any other format. But um, yeah, so that was cool. You know, another thing I wanted to mention this week um, was this kind of cool campaign out in LA, uh, also an out of home campaign for the movie Kong Skull Island, which I believe is a Warner Brothers film uh, that premiered in LA last week. And uh, an agency called Grand Design uh, worked with Warner Brothers on this cool campaign where um, they were basically trying to pretend like Kong had gone, you know, done a rampage through LA. So it, it started out on Dockweiler Beach where they carved out into the sand. Um, I guess it's a process called sculpting the sand. Uh, basically giant Kong footprints, uh, 25 feet long, 12 feet across. Um, they just sort of mysteriously appeared. And of course, uh, the photography is a big part of a campaign like this kind of extending beyond, you know, the on-location ex- execution. So photos were really great and there was four more uh, executions over a period of a week so it was almost like day to day, to day. Kong was you know show, showing up somewhere else in LA a lot of the stuff was kind of vinyl decals you know showing uh, footprints in concrete which obviously isn't uh, quite as as nice as actually sculpting stuff but they went up into uh, I forget the name of the park uh, where the Hollywood sign is, but they they managed to get a permit somehow to carve a couple of giant footprints up in that park as well and uh, the campaign was neat. I should mention, actually, that the same agency, Grand Design, did a very similar thing about seven years ago for a previous Kong movie. Um, so they were sort of recycling an idea here, but Warner Brothers um, knew about the earlier campaign, and they and they came to this agency and said, we want to t- kind of take that idea and uh, and kind of blow it out into something a little bigger. Um, but the, the previous campaign actually won a lion in Cannes, so it's not exactly, it wasn't exactly unknown. Um, but I like the way this was done. It was, it was pretty cool work. I, I assumed when I first saw it that it was Taylor Herring, that company that did the uh, the Game of Thrones skull on the beach. And oh, all that. right, yeah. I mean, that that Taylor Herring, first of all, does this kind of stuff almost better than anyone else. Um, and, you know, that, that skull that they made for Game of Thrones, I think that was probably about four or five years ago. Uh, it was amazing. I think it was over in England, I think they did that. And it, it was really, really incredibly, incredibly done. It looked like basically a, a skeleton of a giant uh, dragon had washed up on the beach, and, and it was just the head. And uh, it was super believable, and the photography was amazing. 
So, but you know, as as out of home, um, large creature beach stunts go, this one was cool too. I, I feel like we named our podcast after these kinds of of projects. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's true, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, as always, Tim, for rounding up the best ads of the week. Uh, and definitely check out adweek.com. We, Tim oversees our creativity section and the Ad Freak blog that is found within, and also our Ad of the Day feature that appears in the brand marketing section every day. So definitely check that out and follow Tim at, at Nud, N-U-D-D, on Twitter because he shares a lot of stuff on there, too, that sometimes we don't even have a chance to write about. And with that, it's time to talk about South by Southwest. All right. Well, it's that time of the year. Uh, thousands of people head down to Austin and pay exorbitant prices to stay for a week. It's thousands and thousands of dollars to stay in Austin, but hey, okay. Um, we're not there again. Uh, Lauren, I'm curious. So you're a tech reporter. You have, I assume you, we have sent you to South by at least uh, one of these years, correct? I have gone uh, twice. Yeah. And I, are you? do you regret not being there at all? Any FOMO or are you just happy to not be part of the maelstrom? Uh, I'm a little, you know, it's, South by is fun. I would imagine that our whole crew, it's, it's a long haul though. I mean, I think they all started on like Thursday down there. So I can, you can only imagine that today is Monday afternoon and, and they're, they're feeling it. <laughs> they're ready. Uh, it, it's a long stretch of period of time to be in, in Austin with all the craziness going on. So well, and we also have a blizzard blowing into New York, which has meant that several of our staffers who did want to come back uh, somewhat early, meaning tomorrow, uh, are not able to. And because of all the flights outbound out of a small, relatively small city like Austin, they can't even get out the next day. And so uh, we've had several people who I don't think wanted to stay the duration and now kind of have to. I guess there are worse things, but still, that probably is creating logistical difficulties for all sorts of people, not just us. But um, tell us a little bit about... Uh, let, let's kind of start big picture, Lauren. Um, before we get into kind of trends and stories that are coming out of it, what what do you feel is the value of South by Southwest specifically to marketers? I think the uh, the value of South by has changed for the marketing community throughout the years. I mean, South by uh, originally was not catered towards marketers at all. It was all about the tech community, and you saw a bunch of um, startups like Twitter and Foursquare get launched there to to big fanfare and then go on to, to do things. And that's kind of changed over the years now that there's more activations. Agencies have a, a, all agents, a lot of agencies have a big presence there to do panels and talk about, you know, bigger issues in the advertising community. So I would say it's, it's definitely changed, but it's still in terms of it kind of differentiating itself from other uh, festivals and conferences out there has a little bit more of like a homegrown feel to it, um, just because of Austin's such such a cultural place that it, ha- it it feels a little bit different than going to to CES or any of these other like mega conferences where it, it can be hard to kind of stand out. Uh, Tim, this is one of the first years you didn't go. You have family there, so I know it makes you kind of it makes it a bit easier for you to stay. Uh, what what has struck you, I mean, you go to Cannes every year, you go, go to a bunch of different conferences. What sets South by apart? Um, well, I, I find, first of all, that it's, the programming is overwhelming at South by. It's like, uh, I think I, I've been twice. I haven't been, I didn't, obviously not this year or last year, but, but a few years ago I went a couple, uh, for two years in a row. And uh, there's just so much programming. I think uh, in one, there was one hour long stretch on like Saturday, I think it was, where there was 82 different panels going on at the same time. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I went to CES this year too, and that's overwhelming in a, in a different way. Um, but for us, I mean, finding, for me, kind of as an agency reporter, you know, um, there are so many, as, as Lauren mentioned, there are so many agencies there now. And they're all, you know, they do talk about creativity in particular where, where tech and creativity uh, are meeting. And you do get to really, if you plan your days right, you can experience a lot of tech there um, in ways that even at, even at CES, I think it's, it's kind of difficult to. Um, but I, I found it really enlightening. You know, the panels there are often really great and agencies, uh, ad agencies do get involved in, in the panel programming a lot at South By. And so you can, you know, you can really sort of, hear what, what agencies are thinking um, 
you know, when it comes to, you know, tech activations and things like that. And then you have also these really fun kind of pop-up stuff happen all the time. You know, Game of Thrones has done a bunch of cool activations at South by this year. AMC did this pretty cool thing that we uh, did a video on. Alfred and John were down there. Uh, they, they created a pop-up version of um, Poyos Hermanos restaurant from Breaking Bad to to kind of advertise the, the um, Gus Fring character's return to uh, Better Call Saul. Uh, so, you know, it's a mixture of pretty cool panels and, and insight and also just kind of fun stunts. And yeah, that's a nice mix. So uh, the presentations, the big keynotes are always interesting to see which ones really resonate. The one that I saw probably getting some of the most social chatter was Joe Biden, uh, obviously former vice president. Uh, he spoke about a very personal issue for him, which is cancer. He lost his son, Bo, recently to cancer. Uh, and this is a man who's already had quite a bit of tragedy in his life. He was introduced by his wife, a, a doctor, uh, and she introduced him, and then he came out and spoke about how fighting cancer is basically the last bipartisan issue. It's the last thing on which all Americans agree. He really encouraged the community. It, it reminded me somewhat of Bono's presentation to Cannes a few years ago where he basically saying, hey, we've got all these great minds in the room. Let's use those to fight, uh, in the case of Bono, to fight AIDS. Uh, and, uh, and for Joe Biden, fighting cancer. Uh, and he still, you know, he took a few digs at uh, the current administration, but, you know, in true kind of Biden form, he stayed above the fray and uh, and gave what, what clearly was a very powerful uh, presentation. And he just seemed like the kind of guy who's going to be a, a home run presenter uh, at an event like South By. Uh, one of the other stories we covered that was kind of interesting from a product and marketing perspective was Facebook uh, is launching its biggest B2B campaign ever. Uh, basically trying to reach out to media agencies, to brands, really trying to get them to uh, create more ads uh, and more campaigns that are customized for smartphone users to recognize all of Facebook's different platforms and try to use, of course, as many of them as possible. Uh, they're really pushing Instagram as part of that. Uh, Lauren, what did you think of this of this campaign in terms of what what message does Facebook need to get out there to marketers? Is this really a lack of awareness or is it... Uh, you know, what wh what do you think their their end game is here? Well, I'm not so sure that it's a it's really a lack of awareness. I mean, we talk about like, you know, F Facebook owns mobile advertising for the most part. They over overwhelmingly most of their revenue comes from mobile. That's kind of a, a story that's been in the works for a long time, and now it's finally happened that mobile makes up the most of their revenue. I I would say th this campaign is probably aimed at helping educate marketers about what else they can do with Facebook. You know, we all know that you, you can run a 30-second spot on Facebook, and I would assume that this is probably going to be a little bit more aimed at, here's how to create a vertical video, here's how to do live, here's how to do a bunch of other stuff that brands may not be as familiar with on Facebook, and just really trying to maybe educate marketers beyond some of the basics of, you know, Facebook Advertising 101. I saw a fun fourth wall breaking. I want to say it was for McDonald's, uh, but it was an ad on Facebook where it looks like an ad above a uh, someone's social posting, like an organic post, but it turns out it's all part of the same ad unit. And McDonald's, like the person in the McDonald's ad, reaches down and hands a hamburger to the person in the the social posting right below them, and they reach up and grab it. So you realize, oh, it's all been a you know a video, uh, kind of a fake ad. And I have to admit, that's one where I was like, man, maybe we have just kind of scratched the surface of what you could be doing with some of the. You know, it's just nice seeing those those moments of, oh, okay, there is still stuff to do that's that's pretty fascinating. And pushing Instagram, pushing uh, you know the ad units there and the capabilities of Instagram is something that uh, there's probably less awareness of than kind of the, the vanilla uh, ad platforms. What are some other stories you've been following, or, or if not stories, maybe trends that you're seeing out of the South by Southwest coverage this year? Well, I read uh, the story that our reporter, Christine, there wrote about uh, this session she sat in about with Nick Denton, which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, I, for one, have been kind of curious about what's happened to him uh, post-Gawker, and I don't think they really got that far into it, but it was kind of an interesting look at, you know, the state of media and uh, kind of talking a bit about what happened with Gawker, how he's not he's not upset with the ongoing lawsuit that came from the Hulk Hogan tape and that whole um, disaster that we that we reported on quite quite well at the time. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting 
take to see kind of it's it's those kind of characters that I think South by brings in a, a lot of that have you know interesting stories to tell that are fun to sit in on. That was interesting too that uh, he was interviewed by Jeff Goodby uh, from Goodby Silverstein. That that was uh, an interesting pairing. Tim, what, what did you think when you saw that it was going to be Jeff and uh, and Denton? Uh, you know, Jeff is so funny because he's such an open he's he's open to to um, interviewing anybody. First of all, and I, I've I've I hung out with Jeff at South by a year or two ago. We did a short video with him after he had just seen. Uh, you know, Edward Snowden famously did a, a, a keynote um, via satellite, and uh, we met up with with Jeff right after that um, speech, and he was like all blown away, and he was gonna seemed like he was gonna devote his life to like Snowden's causes and stuff. So <laughs> he's such a credible, like fun person to to do interviews with or or to be the interviewer of, because um, he's just really a, you know such an open, curious person. Um, so yeah, that sounded like uh, the Denton thing sounded sounded super fun. Uh, Goodby wrote one of my favorite guest bylines of all time in Adweek, the 20 years of got milk uh, that he did back in, I guess, 2013. Um, but I recommend looking that up. He's a uh, yeah, very fascinating guy, obviously the creator of got milk and, uh, and you know, just a very, I think there's a lot of question about whether some of these lions of the uh, advertising industry can remain relevant. Uh, I think a lot of them question that themselves and, and, you know, Goodby certainly pokes fun at himself, but, you know, here he is in the middle of these uh, very topical conversations. Katie, anything uh, come out of uh, South by that you've seen so far that, that has sparked your interest? I just think it's kind of hilarious to look at the different activations that brands do and just like how far people will go to get attention. And I guess maybe that just shows how overcrowded these events have become that you have to do some seriously ridiculous things to get attention. So like, Alfred did that video of the new Bravo show that's coming out, Stripped, I think it's called. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just like a bunch of basically naked people walking around in the pouring rain trying to get people excited about this new Bravo show. Um, and I guess it's fitting for the, the show because it's about I something about like giving away your possessions for 21 days and they make you like strip down and take everything away from you. But it just blows my mind how wild and ridiculous brands will get to get attention sometimes. Yeah, I remember so when da- Dating Naked uh, was about to come out, and yeah. I actually, did that? I mean, I doubt it stuck around. I don't, I don't know what happened. No, I think it's naked. still in the air. No, I know well, our um, Diana McDougal used to do live gifting for that, and I think she did it last season, so it must still be a thing. They did in 2014, I covered a, a thing they did that this reminded me of because they basically did a dance. I, I mean, it was they got a bunch of professional dancers to do this huge kind of uh, public dance completely naked. Uh, I mean, they were blurred, but I assume they were completely naked. And uh, it was super well done. It was, you know, nudity without necessarily like trying to be prurient and uh so this reminded me a lot of that but you know i i just laughed because everyone in the south by southwest one is carrying umbrellas and i'm like you're naked yeah like what you're not gonna you're already gonna get soaking wet if it's pouring like it's why like, do you need like, the do you, umbrella <laughs> you really care that your like your bra or, or your you know your duck shorts are gonna get wet i don't know that just for some reason i was like that, that i i questioned their commitment i guess at that point <laughs> i wonder why i've yeah there's been I, the entertainment brands and networks at South by is kind of an interesting cause just because there is there's South by Southwest film obviously but a lot of them activate at South by South interactive like last year they um Mr. Robot had this big Ferris wheel there that was pretty cool to see like we ended up actually shooting a video on it with someone while while it was going which turned out to look pretty cool but it's just kind of interesting that all the entertainment and broadcast brands do so many activations there yeah, and this year we had uh, uh, the the Margaret Atwood Handmaid's Tale, the uh, TV show, had mm-hmm. large groups of women in, in kind of the creepy red nunnery costumes walking around South By. Uh, and then I think our most read South By story ever was the uh, Tinder bot, uh, correct, Tim? Yeah, that was uh, three years ago, I think. And that um, was a promotion for... Um, uh, de- uh, uh, Ex Machina, and uh, right. and so so Tim, you were the I think you were the one who wrote about this. Uh, remind us how that went. It seemed like this is one of the coolest ideas I ever saw from from South by. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were at a party for um, when Community, the the NBC show, was moving to Yahoo at the time, 
And we were at this party for that, and we were going to interview the stars of Community, and we were just sort of milling around. It was like we had like an hour to kill before this thing was happening, and I was with Alfred and John, our video guys, and uh, John was kind of on Tinder at the time and uh, had struck up this conversation um, with a woman on Tinder who he was all excited about this woman and, and meeting her and stuff, and uh, it turned out the the woman was an AI. Uh, it was a bot that was like messing with John, and it was really funny, and uh we realized because it, it held up, a, it, you know, it was like basically a virtual conversation. Um, John had gone on Tinder and found, you know, um, had swiped right on this woman. And, and, and then they started texting each other. And, and her answers seemed, you know, quite uh, like kind of realistic, a little bit over the top and not really that connected to what John was asking. But he, he was totally fooled. And, and uh, basically at the end, she's like, here, here, click here to see where I'm at or whatever. And uh, it went through to like the movie page on Instagram. And uh, he was so like crestfallen, like legitimately crestfallen. <laughs> oh. He was very distraught. <laughs> he was like, really distraught. legitimately distraught. I mean, she yeah. is a very beautiful robot. Oh man, it was so funny. And then, so we wrote about it and, um, you know, it was one of those you know, campaigns that really was kind of a little bit questionable. Like it was kind of spammy in a way. It was really clever on on one on one hand, but it was very de- you know deceptive on the other. And there was a lot of debate over whether it was it went over the you know over the top or not. Um, but it was definitely one of our one of our you know better read stories at that that time. My my favorite is just John's responses, like because we ran the screenshots and she's asking like, "Do you think love is real?" <laughs> and he's like, he's doing such a good job being like a normal guy on Tinder. He's like, "I mean, I, I guess I like to think so. Uh, what what about you? What do you think?" You know, he just he did, it's like if especially if you don't know that it was all organic and this was like a real conversation. It's kind of hilarious that he. I think he, he was I, intrigued that she was asking such deep stuff. Yeah, he's like wow, false promises like is what it was. <laughs> and and now that now that Ex Machina has come out and uh, we've seen it, I'd say he got off uh, pretty easy by not uh, actually going out with a robot. But yes. I won't I won't spoil the movie any more than that. Um, right. Well, that's uh, South by in a nutshell. We've got lots of coverage. If you look for uh, South by Southwest, honestly, at this point, just go to adweek.com and there's tons of South by Southwest coverage. Uh, you can click on any of that to take you to lots more stories. Uh, we've got several people there. We'll try to drag one of them onto the podcast next week when they're back and if they make it back uh, through this uh, 20 inches of snow that we're getting up in New York. But uh, thank you both, uh, both Katie and Lauren, for joining us, Tim, for uh, sharing some of your memories and thoughts on what's been happening out South by, South by this year. And uh, we are going to uh, close it down. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, for joining. And uh, if you want to drop us a note, we're at uh, podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. We love getting your questions and comments. We've got a few things coming up, our annual digital hot list, where we kind of pick some of the hottest things happening in digital from gaming and apps and influencers and companies. And uh, we've got our city spotlight on Atlanta coming in April, uh, which I'm excited about. I've been leading that project and very excited to get it uh, live. And uh, lots more coming, so check out adweek.com, and uh, we will keep you posted. Keep tuning into the podcast. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to give us a review or at least a rating of a few stars on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. only takes a minute, and it means a lot to us and helps new audiences discover the podcast. Thanks to our panel. Thanks to you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Bye.